<clears throat> Matthew 11, as we continue. The title of our sermon today is The Very Heart of Christ. The Very Heart of Christ. You might have seen in your email earlier this, earlier this week that we are giving away copies of Dane Ortland's excellent book, Gentle and Lowly, uh, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Uh, the pastors have all read this book and enjoyed fellowship over it. We've already given out a lot of copies of it, but we want to make sure we get it into everybody's hands. And so if you do not already own a copy of this book, we would like to make sure that you get a copy. Uh, they're on the table in the back back there. Please pick one up on the way out. Um, one per family would be fantastic. We love the theme of this book. It is about Christ's heart for sinners and sufferers. And this is something that we want to define us as a church. We want to be a people who know the tender compassion of Jesus Christ and who live in the good of it. Yes, we want to know that Christ lived and died for us to forgive us our sins, but we also want to know that He still cares about us. Yes, we want to know, we want to have an awareness of His atoning work for our sinfulness, but we also want to be aware of how He feels for us, that He longs to be near us. We want to know and live in the good of knowing the very heart of Jesus for sinners. And Ray Ortland does a, or not Ray Ortland, Dane Ortland does a wonderful job uh, examining many passages that reveal our Savior's heart to us. And, uh, and so please pick up your copy when you leave, uh, but do me a favor, do not put it on your bookshelf to be read at some distant future point. Do not put it on that stack of books that you intend to get to, but that down in your heart you know you are never going to get to. Instead, intend to go home and read this book. In fact, we're actually asking you to read a couple chapters for an upcoming community group meeting uh, discussion with the hopes that that will help get you into the book and give you a taste for it, and that once you've taken up and started reading it, uh, you'll read on through it. Now, coming into our passage today, it's not my usual practice to read extended portions of other people's writings, but Ortland opens his book on the passage that we're looking at today. And he does so so beautifully, and I want to give you a taste for his book, but I thought I would begin where he begins. He writes, My dad pointed out to me something that Charles Spurgeon pointed out to him. In the four gospel accounts given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters of biblical text, there is only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. We learn much in the four Gospels about Christ's teaching. We read about his birth, his ministry, his disciples. We are told of his travels and prayer habits. We find lengthy speeches. We learn the way he understood himself to fulfill the whole Old Testament. And we learn in all four accounts of his unjust arrest, shameful death, an astonishing resurrection. Top of that, consider the thousands of pages that have been written by theologians over the past 2,000 years on all of these things. But in only one place do we hear Jesus himself open up to us his very heart. 
in that one place, we are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We're not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We're not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set his own terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Our passage this morning is Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30. I invite you to follow along as I read. This is... God's holy and authoritative word. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. May the Lord <clears throat> excuse me, bless both the preaching and the believing of his word. I recently heard someone say that the longer you are a Christian, uh, the more you realize how different your heart is from Jesus's. The longer you're a Christian, the more you realize your heart is different from Christ's heart. To illustrate, consider how you respond when someone sins against you. Are you inclined to take it personally, to assume the worst, to take offense, to withdraw from them? Or what about when someone else's sin inconveniences you? I don't know about you, but when that happens to me, it cannot be said of me that I am long-suffering. Instead, I tend to get annoyed by other people's sins or anxious. Or... Take that group, you know that other group, the people who believe those things, take those positions you strongly disagree with, the people on the other end of the political aisle, those who believe, those who you believe are contributing the most to the decay of our society. What is your posture towards them? Do you tend to be self-righteous? Condescending? looking down upon them, rolling your eyes, if not ranting against them. Parents, what comes out of your heart when your kids melt down in the grocery store or late at night? What comes out of your heart when they do not obey fast, happy, and all the way? Aren't we inclined to be harsh? 
to be short, to be angry. Our hearts are not like Jesus' heart. That's the point of this passage today. When people sin against us, we tend to pull away from them, we tend to take offense, we tend to get angry, we may even feel disgusted with them. But Jesus is not like us. He invites us to come to Him with all of our sin, with all of our mess, with all of our need, and find that He is gentle and lowly in heart. I think each of us, you know, most of us here are Christians. Most of us try to live a good life and be good people and have a nice, neat Christian life. And yet, each of us have sins. Sins that we don't like to talk about with others. Sins that we like to keep locked away in the closet. Sins that we don't even like to be honest with God about. We'd rather not think about them in front of Him. It's the longing of every human heart to be really known all the way down. Even to the point where those secret things and those deeds done in darkness and those repeated offenses that we can't believe we still struggle with, it's the longing of every human heart to be fully known all the way down to that level and still be loved, still be accepted. And that's why Jesus' invitation in our passage today is so powerful and such good news. Because it's not a call to the worthy to come to Him, but for the weary to come to Him. It's not a call for saints to come to Him, but for sinners to come to Him. John Piper has said, kind of humorously, that the difference between Uncle Sam and Jesus Christ... It's not a comparison you get every day, but the difference between Uncle Sam and Jesus Christ is that Uncle Sam won't enlist you unless you're healthy, but Jesus won't enlist you unless you're sick. And this is really what Jesus is getting at in verses 25 through 27 in our passage. Um, These are thick theological passages, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on them, but here Jesus is teaching us how it is, the way it is that God moves towards us and and who it is that he moves towards, uh, who it is he reveals himself to. Jesus says that he hides, God hides himself from the wise and the understanding, from the people who have got their life together, from the people who don't seem like they have any need for God. God hides himself from those kinds of people, but reveals himself instead to little children. In other words, to people who are needy, to people who are open to help to people who are often overlooked by others. And then in verse 27, Jesus kind of pivots. He says that all authority has been, everything has been given to him. It's now his job to reveal the Father. It's his job to make known to the little children what the heart of the Father is. It's his, it's his job to reveal the Father. And he immediately turns to us in verse 28 and says, Come to me. It's my job to reveal God the Father. Okay. Come. Come to me, all 
who labor and are heavy laden. All who labor to be good enough for God. That's what Jesus is talking about here. All of you who labor to try and be good enough for God, who try and live a good enough life, who try and be good enough people, who work and work to try and keep a nice and tidy life, but who are so worn down by it, who are so wearied by that life, and really so bored by that life, so bored by a, a kind of superficial, fake life of faking it to make it. Come to me, Jesus says. If you are laboring and heavy laden with sins that drag you down, but that maybe you're hiding from others and you're not bringing... No, come to me. Heavy laden under command you cannot keep. Heavy laden by shackles of shame. Come to me. This is as personal and as gracious an invitation as Jesus can give. Come to me. And I will give you rest. Jesus loves to call us to himself. He did it over and over again. For instance, in John, he would say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. John 6. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and let him drink. John 7. And in John 5.40, Jesus says, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus came calling people to himself. He came inviting us to come to him, and he's inviting us to come to him today if we acknowledge we're laboring and heavy laden. The gospel's for sinners. Jesus calls sinners to him. And if we'll come, there are at least two things we'll find. Two things we find a gracious rest and a gentle heart. So point number one, a gracious rest. Verse 28 again. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In his day, Jesus saw how the religious leaders had had taken God's law and turned it into a burden for God's people. Uh, They were using obedience to the law to try to get people to earn acceptance with God. And to this day, all the religions of the world still do the exact same thing. They are marked by people who labor under heavy loads of legalism, trying to earn God's favor through their good works. And even the irreligious in our day, they are doing the same thing. They live by the same assumption that if they can be good enough, they'll get into whatever heaven is. So just picture yourself stopping. Picture yourself stopping 100 people on the street. So you came down to where I live in Highland Square and we just went out onto the street and we stopped 100 people to ask them that proverbial question, if you died today and God were to ask you why he should let you into heaven, what would you say? If we stopped 100 people and asked that, the prevailing answer would be some version of because I'm a pretty good person. Because I'm not as bad as these people. Because I've never killed anybody. Because I'm trying to do good in this world. But what is it these people are relying on? What's the object of their faith? What are they depending on to get them into heaven? Is it not their own performance? Is it not their own good deeds? Is it not their own self-righteousness? 
The problem with this is that they underestimate God's standard for goodness. They underestimate God's standard for righteousness. Uh, There are many places in Scripture that that speak about God's standard, His perfect standard. Here's one of them, Galatians 3, verse 10. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So here is God's standard. It is perfect obedience. It's abiding by all the things written in the book of the law and doing them. Do you know what the Greek word for all means? All. Not most, but all. It's like this. The world assumes God grades on a curve. The world assumes God grades on a curve. I had a math teacher in high school, Mr. Murphy, who gave notoriously tough tests, but graded with a notoriously charitable curve. We called it the Murphy curve. Somehow, the highest grade would be a 50%, and that became an A. And that's the only reason I passed 12th grade math was because of the Murphy curve. But the Murphy curve was somewhat arbitrary. It slipped up and down. We never knew exactly where it was set. But God's justice does not work that way. God is not arbitrary. God is not impulsive. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. For him, right is right and always has been right, and wrong is wrong and always has been wrong. This is true, and it is true all the way down to our motives and all the way out to our ends. The world assumed God grades on a curve, but he does not. He is just in all his ways, and his standard is perfect righteousness. So what are we to do? How are we to get to God? How can we ever be good enough to be accepted by Him? The answer is, we can't, Christ can. Right? That's the answer. We can't, Christ can. This is the good news of the gospel. Christ calls all who are laboring for God's approval and heavy laden by their failures to come to Him and He will give them rest. He will gift them rest. Give is the language of grace. And Jesus is saying, there is a rest for your soul that you cannot earn, that you do not deserve, but that I will freely give to you. It is resting in my saving work, Jesus is saying it is resting in all that I will do and have done to save you. The whole world is in search of true rest, and yet Christ alone can give it. He alone can give us rest from the burden-bearing work of trying to earn God's favor. Only Christ can give us this because in the first place, his death on the cross has secured our forgiveness. His death in our place erases all our guilt. It pardons all our iniquities. So we can rest easy in Him. In Christ we are forgiven. And as Psalm 32 declares, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. You know what it's like to like get into a fight with your, your spouse or a friend or even a, one of your kids and you work through it 
and they extend forgiveness and you extend forgiveness and it's like it's not the like i'm sorry but it's not any of that kind of thing it's like the real forgiveness and your heart afterward just feels so free and so reunited with them and and you, you just want to you want to do life together you want to be together you want you want to live in joy and in peace well, whatever sins you have committed whatever deeds of darkness you have done Jesus has already secured for you your full pardon God forgives you in Christ he forgives you for sins past present and future he has already forgiven you there is nothing you can do that he has not already forgiven there's nothing you can bring to him that he will not fully pardon he will never hold your sins against you he removes them as far as the east is from the west he cast all your sins into the depths of the sea through his saving work on the cross, Christ secures our forever forgiveness. But forgiveness only pardons our guilt. If you can forgive me for saying only in such an amazing thing as that. He only, for, or he only pardons our guilt. It does not provide the righteousness, righteousness we need to be accepted by God. I mean, to go back to the math test, it's like forgiveness is like erasing all of our bad answers, but forgiveness doesn't go back in and fill in all the right answers. For that, we need the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. For full acceptance, we need Jesus' perfect record of obedience credited to our record. And this happens at the cross as well. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made Jesus, him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of Jesus' saving work on our behalf, God thinks of our sins as fully forgiven and he thinks of Christ's righteousness as fully belonging to us. And this is what the Bible calls justification. Our, be, our being declared right with God. There's an old play on the word justified that goes like this. In Christ, it's just as if we'd never sinned. Justified. Just as if we'd never sinned. That's true about us. But it's also true about us in Christ that it's just as if we've always obeyed. It's just as if we've never sinned and it's just as if we've always obeyed. Always. This is how God sees us in Jesus. And this is the gift of of rest that Christ gives to us. We can rest easy in Jesus' righteousness accredited to us. We never have to do anything to earn God's favor. Jesus has already done it all. And so fully has he done it that there is now nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not death, not angels, not things present, nor things to come, not height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including every sin you ever struggle with. Now, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, you may come to Jesus long before you understand a quarter of what I just said. Listen, none of us came to Jesus Christ here today because we understood all the theology I've just been talking about for the last 10 minutes. 
None of us understood that. If you're here today and say, I'm kind of interested in Jesus, I'm thinking about Jesus, I don't have a clue what you just said. Well, that's how we all felt when we came to Jesus. This is us looking back at our salvation and understanding what Jesus Christ did. You don't have to know and understand all that to come to Jesus. Here is what you need to know. That there is one who beckons you, that calls you to himself and invites you to bring all your sin with you. The one who beckons you is Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And he says to you, come to me. He calls you to himself, not because Jesus needs something from you, not because he's lacking in something. Jesus calls, come to me, because he has something for you, because he has something to give to you. As one commentator put it, Jesus is not holding up a help-wanted sign for us, but a help-available sign to us. And the only qualification is that you bring your need, that you bring your sin and your shame and your struggles, and you lay them down at the feet of Jesus Christ. Come to me, Jesus calls, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is eager for you to find rest for your soul. He's more eager for you to have that rest than you are yourself. He does not want you to labor under the heavy burden of trying to gain God's acceptance, of trying to get God's blessing. He does not want you to rely on your own performance. And Christian, this goes for you just as much as it goes for any unbeliever. Jesus does not want you to labor under the belief that it's your lack of scandalous sin, it's your regular church attendance, it's your daily devotions, it's your serving others or giving things away sacrificially. None of that secures your relationship with God. None of that makes you better accepted with God. None of that brings more of his blessing into your life. Jesus did not come to place heavy burdens upon you. And you don't get saved by grace and then live the Christian life by performance. It's all by grace through and through. He does not want you burdened under performance and he does not want you shackled to shame or chained to condemnation because you can never be good enough. When you come to Jesus, you find a gracious rest that extends over all your life. He has done all the saving work there is to be done so you can rest easy. That's the first thing we find when we come to Jesus. It's a gracious rest. The second is a gentle heart. A gentle heart. In verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Here's the one place in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the one place in 89 chapters of biblical text where Jesus tells us about his very own heart, that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Commenting on this passage, Dane Ortland explains, when the Bible speaks of the heart, whether Old Testament or New, it is not speaking of our emotional life only, but of the central animating center of all we do. 
It is what gets us out of bed in the morning and what we dream about as we drift off to sleep. It is our motivation headquarters. The heart, in biblical terms, is not a part of who we are, but the center of who we are. Heart is what defines and directs us. That's why Solomon tells us to keep the heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Proverbs 4, 23. The heart drives all we do. It is who we are. And when Jesus tells us what animates him most deeply, what is most true of him, when he exposes the innermost recesses of his being, what we find there is gentle and lowly. This is an extraordinary passage that we are looking at here today. Here is Jesus declaring to us what he is truly like in his soul. We know it in part, but our minds cannot grasp it in full. Jesus says, do you want to know what I am like? And mind you, these are words that only a sinner really cares about. These are words that only a struggling sinner says, man, I needed to hear that. Jesus says, you want to know how I feel towards sinners? Gentle. So gentle. The Greek word translated gentle here is also translated in the New Testament as meek and humble. It tells us Jesus is not harsh when we sin. He's not like us. He's not exasperated or annoyed. I like how Dane Ortland says it. He says, this word tells us the posture most natural to Jesus towards sinners is not a pointed finger, but open arms. you're here today and you're an exhausted or burnt out sinner I hope you hear this Jesus is the gentlest person you will ever meet he is a true gentle man and in just a few verses he will apply to himself the words from Isaiah a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench What does this mean? It means for those bruised by their sins, Jesus is so gentle with you. For those who feel like a wick that's nearly blown out, you've messed up so badly, or so many times, you're afraid to come to God for fear He'll turn you away, He'll be severe or stern towards you, and it'll snuff you out. Jesus reassures you, His gentle heart. He's so tender with struggling sinners. This is who Jesus is. Won't you come to Him? Jesus is your sympathetic high priest. He understands your weaknesses. 
He took on human nature so that He could be gracious to you. When He saw the crowds as sheep without a shepherd, He yearned for them. All who came to Him for help, Jesus never turned away. He shed tears for those who shed His blood. He died for His enemies. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And He still has the same heart in heaven today that He had here on earth. So you can come to Him with any sin in your life. He is gentle and caring. Conceal not your wounds from this gentle physician. Go to Him instead like that trembling woman who said, if I might but touch His garment, then I'll be well. Jesus tells us He is gentle with sinners and He is also lowly of heart. This word is also translated humble, but it doesn't mean the virtue of humility, the the character of humility, but it means more like humble circumstances, like like life has thrust you down to a low level. Uh, Paul uses a word similarly in Romans 12. He says, you know, not to be haughty, but to associate with the lowly. Uh, He means those who uh, are less impressive in society, less successful. And what Jesus is getting at by using this word here in this way is he's trying to communicate how incredibly accessible he is. There's no pretense to him. There's no fanfare. I was telling my kids about this last night. I was like, it's not like meeting the President of the United States where you have to make your appointment and there's going to be trumpets blaring and everybody stands. Jesus is just, so lowly. You almost think if he were to visit here on Sunday morning, we might miss him. I mean, we wouldn't. But we feel like we might. Think again about his ministry on earth. Thomas came to Jesus with all his doubts And Jesus invited him to touch his hand and touch his side. Peter came to Jesus after denying him three times. Jesus denied him not. A leper came to Jesus and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, saying, I will be clean. Jesus' closest friends slept through his darkest night, and yet Jesus comforted them, saying, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, for all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, for his, all his ascendancy to the right hand of the Father and his reign over all created things, still Jesus is the most accessible person you will ever meet. And yet when we hear this, We can assume, we can argue, we can just kind of default in our heart to think, no, that cannot be true. This is just rhetorical flourish Jace is using up here. This this cannot be true. Jesus cannot be that accessible. Instead, uh, we tend to think of Jesus coming to us uh, in our sin, um, at least Dane Ortland says it, it's like this. He uses a vivid picture, which I really enjoy a lot. He says that we tend to think of Jesus meeting us in our sin, uh, much like we imagine a little boy touching a slug for the first time. Face screwed up. 
cautiously extending our hand, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact, and instantly withdrawing. We can imagine Jesus responds something like that to us with all our nasty sin, with all our faults and failures. But this is exactly why we need the Bible. Because here the heart of Christ is unveiled to us. He is gentle and lowly. He's not like that. Jesus is tender and compassionate. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself. You don't need to put yourself together to come to Jesus. It is, in fact, your very burden that qualifies you to come. No payment is required, Jesus says. I will gift you rest. Jesus is far more inclined to move towards those in sin than he is to move away from us and judge us. Just study his life. Study the Gospels. There we see his heart in action. He is constantly healing the sick, dining with sinners, preaching the Gospel to the poor, feeding the multitudes, delivering the demonized, weeping with those who mourn, forgiving those who sin, and having compassion on the crowds. This is your Savior. And His heart for you is that of the most tender compassion. When you struggle with sin, Jesus is not annoyed with you. He is not angered at you. He is not walled off or withdrawn from you. He is gentle and lowly in the way He draws near to you. Friends, we must remember the gospel is for sinners. It's not good news for the worthy, but for the unworthy. And so the gospel is meaningful to us. Maybe sometimes you come in here and you hear us talking about the gospel and you see us singing about the gospel and you just think, you know, I'm just not moved like other people. I, I look around, I just don't have that passion. I just don't have that excitement about the gospel. Why do people get so excited about the gospel? Why are so people so grateful for the gospel? What is that? Well, the gospel is, only mean, is meaningful to us only to the extent that we realize and acknowledge we are still sinful. Yes, Jesus died for our sins. Yes, he's purchased our forgiveness and transferred to us his righteousness. But still we sin every day in thought and word and deed and motive. So still we need the gospel every day. Once you get saved, you realize you just need to get saved every single day. So with whatever sins are in your life, this is the great invitation to be open and honest, to live in the light. You can come to Jesus with any and every sin. Whatever struggle you have, whatever deeds you've done in the dark, hear the call of Christ to you today. It sounds like this. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, sinners Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him.
Jesus has bought for us the greatest rest there could ever be. Peace with God. And part of that rest, Jesus says, I had a whole third part to the sermon, a third point, and I had to cut it. So here you get it in a paragraph. Part of that rest is his yoke is then easy and his burden is light. What this means is that it's not a hard thing to live for a God who you know loves you. It's not a burdensome thing to obey a father who you know cares about you. Jesus' yoke is easy and burden is light. He's saying, come learn from me because it's so wonderful to obey a God who loves you so incredibly. We obey God out of gratitude for what he has freed us from, not because we're trying to gain things from him. When we're trying to gain from him, obedience is so burdensome. It's so hard. Jerry Bridges calls it the performance treadmill. You just run and run and run and you never get off. But when we obey out of gratitude, what a happy heart. What a light burden. What a good, good father. You see, we are all John Bunyan's pilgrim whose burdens have rolled off our backs down into the tomb of Christ and been swallowed up there. We are forgiven and we are free. We are free to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time and need. And all of this is because the very heart of Christ toward us is one of gentle and lowly affection. So, Consider today, consider today where you are looking for rest outside of Jesus. What are you looking to give you rest, and how is that working for you? For some of you, it's tamping down, it's stuffing down inside of you, trying to smother your conscience the conviction of your sin. But I ask you, is that bringing you rest? Some of you are trying to lock the skeletons of your shameful deeds into some closet and keep it hidden there. You're not talking honestly with others about them and you're not willing to really let God in there either. But I'm asking, is that really bringing you rest? Others of you are you're kind of living in denial. You just try to busy yourself all day with work and then play all night. You work all day and then you watch TV through the evening or you go hang out with friends or do whatever just to keep your mind off your sin. But is that bringing you rest? Some of you are trying so hard to live that neat and tidy Christian life. But you know a lot of it's an act. 
You've got a smile painted on your face like a clown's. Are you finding rest? When Jesus says, come to me, he is calling us to cast aside all the pseudo-rest this world offers. To come and drink from his fountain. To come and eat of his bread and find true rest. And when Christ says, come to me, he calls us to cast aside all our imagined strength and rely on his very real strength instead. His saving work is finished on our behalf. His heart is gentle and, and lowly. In Christ, we can rest easy. So in conclusion, let me share with you one last time from Dane Ortland's book. Um, and partly that's just to remind you to pick it up on your way out because I so want you to read it and study the heart of Jesus Christ for you. But commenting on our, passion, our passage, Ortland writes, Let Jesus draw you in through the loveliness of his heart. This is a heart that upbraids the unrepentant with all the harshness that is appropriate, yet embraces the penitent with more openness than we are able to feel. I love that line. Yet embraces the penitent with more openness than we are able to feel. It is a heart that walks us into the bright meadow of the felt love of God. It is a heart that drew the despised and forsaken to His feet and self-abandoning hope. It is a heart of perfect balance and proportion, never overreacting, never excusing, never lashing out. It is a heart that throbs with desire for the destitute. It is a heart that floods the suffering with the deep solace of shared solidarity in that suffering. It is a heart that is gentle and lowly. The heart Jesus reveals to us in Matthew 11, friends, is still the heart He has for sinners today. I'll say it again. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So let's go to Him and find rest for our souls. Will you join me in prayer?